The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you today for this uh, uh, PD Day, and uh, I trust that uh, you've already found it uh, beneficial. Thank you for your warm welcome and introduction. The uh, real primary purpose of uh, what I want to talk to you about this morning is to talk about the overall context of uh, uh, education in Ontario. But the purpose of that is really to um, hopefully encourage and uh, inspire you with respect to what you are doing, because I regard uh, Christian teachers and Christian schools as the kind of shock troops uh, on the front line of the challenge facing uh, the church today. We're not just uh, um, sheltering uh, a small uh, band of of Christians left in uh, outlying Christian communities. We're actually equipping and preparing a whole generation of uh, children for the future in the context, in the broader context of uh, educational revolution, really, in uh, North America. The fundamental difference in the goals of Christian education from progressive education, and I hope you do uh, think through at times, consider the difference with what you are doing over against what other educators are doing, means that there are fundamental challenges, of course, legally today, facing um, Christian education, whether it's TWU, Uh, whether it's the Catholic school system, and increasingly whether it's efforts to encroach into the private and even homeschool environment. And that concerns, the reason there is such controversy, is the purpose of education. So I want to ask some foundational questions today. John Milton wrote, the great English Puritan, that the purpose of education from the Christian point of view was this, and I quote, the end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright, and out of that knowledge to love him, to imitate him, to be like him. Now, I think we probably all agree that the majority of educators in public education today would not agree with that as the goal of learning. Now, the dominant uh, Canadian view of education today amongst elites is the that the basic driving force or goal to which we are working is the furtherance of a multicultural, pluralistic society that advances what it calls social justice. Social justice. In terms of modern uh, liberal statism. And uh, this means there is a state-controlled, state-managed character to education today. Religion in this particular perspective is a minor component of the humanistic curriculum. So you can teach world religions. They can be taught to students as aspects of sociological reality, but you can't privilege any of them as more significant than the other. So you might be allowed to teach, even when I was in school in England, there were RE classes, religious education classes, where equal time had to be given to the various religious worldviews. 
So they, religion is accorded a place, of course, in public education, in social studies. But you can't be seen to privilege any particular perspective, which is exactly what you're doing, I trust. Tillich's definition, actually, or Paul Tillich's definition of religion is as good as any. He called it ultimate concern. Ultimate concern. And the term religion, we probably derive from the uh, word religio, meaning to tie back. It's a kind of agricultural metaphor that is concerned with getting things growing in the same direction. So the Christian premise of our education is that all life is religious... And all worldviews are dealing with ultimate concerns. They may be humanistic, pagan, Islamic, Hindu, whatever they may be, but they are dealing with ultimate concern. An education will be built around the dominant perspective of any culture, which is exactly what has happened today in Canada. T.S. Eliot put it this way. He says, we derive our theory of education from our philosophy of life. The problem turns out to be a religious problem. So the nature and character of what we're doing is, of course, fundamentally religious, and it's no different in the public system. The Christian philosopher Henry Van Til noted that culture, he says, is, quote, the public manifestation of religion. In other words, the culture that surrounds us today is simply applied beliefs, and those beliefs are no more... Uh, evidently applied than in the spheres of education and law. Everything we do in education and law is expressive of our religious convictions. So if you went to Saudi Arabia today, or Pakistan, where my parents uh, lived for about 15, 16 years, you will experience Islamic culture. And the good reason for that is that Islam is the religion of the dominant religion of the country, and it permeates all law and education. Come to Canada today and you experience secular, or some would say even pagan, culture. So today, multiculturalism, or philosophical pluralism, is the religious ideology of state-controlled polytheism. In other words, we're very much like the ancient Roman Republic today. In this sense, what's happened with the, with the issue of the debate or discussion of education in Canada is that the terms have already been fixed by the elites. The question they are asking is not um, whether education should be Christian. The question is, what should we do with Christian holdouts in the public schools? What should we do with parents who are still Christians with their children in public schools. The question is not whether religion is taught in schools. The question is which one, which is going to dominate. And that is what is controversial for us in our time, and it's certainly very prescient for parents living in Toronto within the TDSB. What do educators Uh, do with students who are Christians, and what will the government do with Christian private schools and home schools whose worldview is different from the humanistic education of the state system? Should such Christian schools and perspectives be tolerated? These are the questions that are being asked. Should home education be tolerated? It's illegal in Germany. 
And in, in much of the United Kingdom, uh, there is now a requirement that home schools be inspected with children interviewed on their own, without their parents, to determine the suitability of their education. According to the provincial bar associations, or at least some of them, Christian students shouldn't be allowed to practice law in this country. From a Christian standpoint, then, humanistic elites have ideologically subverted Christianity in our culture, primarily through the tool of state education. And their project, active since the 1960s especially, has succeeded beyond some of their wildest dreams. The issue now for many of them is the simply the mopping up campaign of the vestiges of Christianity in the question of what to do with Christian holdouts, of which some of you are representative. And yet, let's take a look back over the history of education in the West. Especially in the British Commonwealth, it's uncontroversial to say that the founding of schools and universities was one of the hallmarks of Protestant Christianity. That's why it seems the bulk of Christian schools in Ontario are Dutch reform schools, right? Because uh, the Dutch community, which my father is a part at least, uh, boot, it's boat, um, was concerned for, Protestant Christians were concerned for education. Schools and universities in Canada were Christian institutions, and they were tied usually to one Christian denomination or another. You look at the universities in Canada, that was the case. Back in England, the story was the same as was the case in the, UK, in the USA. Cambridge was a Puritan university. Oxford, of course, was a Christian university. Harvard in Boston was an evangelical institution. Durham University was founded by Oliver Cromwell himself. And Cromwell established numerous elementary schools and sent commissioners throughout England to research all the educational needs. And the reason was that Protestant Christians, in particular, saw all knowledge as an integrated whole under God, where everything was to be understood and taught in the light of a Christian or biblical worldview. There was no such thing as a sacred-secular divide. If the creation, if the world is God's cosmic temple, as the Bible seems to clearly indicate, the tabernacle and the temple being a copy, and we are set as priests of God to serve him within it, then there is no sacred-secular dichotomy. One of the rules at the early Harvard College read this way, and I quote, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning, end quote. That was Harvard. Ultimately, the goal of education for the Christian, then, is to make a whole person, a mature individual, who comes to share the character of God ethically but also to share his love of truth and of beauty, thinking his thoughts after him. And so following Luther and Calvin, the Protestant Christian tradition in Europe and Britain advocated what we call the liberal arts curriculum, or what we might call a classical educational model of grammar, logic, rhetoric. They advanced seven liberal arts. And the very 
concept of the university was unity and diversity. That's what university means. Theology was there as the queen of the sciences. All other studies were to be understood in light of God and his word. So you had unity within the diversity of studies, the university. It's the last medieval institution. What humanism has created today with pluralism is the multiversity. There's no God. There's no source of unity. There's a multiverse. Now, the Christian contention is therefore that education is an inescapably religious task because it grows out of our philosophy of life grounded in biblical Assumptions, And this has been, this is interesting that it's been recognized by actually very important political philosophers in Canada. The most important Canadian political philosopher is probably George Grant, who highlighted the relationship between religion and ed- education. And he, he himself acknowledged there is no escape from religious assumptions and indoctrination in education. This is what he said. Listen closely. This is George Grant. The origin of the word... Religion is, of course, shrouded in uncertainty, but the most likely account is that it arises from the Latin to bind together. It is in this sense that I intend to use it. That is, as that system of belief, whether true or false, which binds together the life of individuals and gives to those lives whatever consistency of purpose they may have. Such a use implies that I would describe liberal humanists or Marxists as religious people. Indeed, I would say all persons, insofar as they are rational beings, are religious. Indeed, the present controversy is not concerned with whether religion should be taught in schools, but rather what should be the content of the religion that is so taught. It is perfectly clear that in North American state schools, religion is already taught in the form of what may be best called the religion of democracy. That the teaching about the virtues of democracy is religion and not political philosophy is clearly seen from the fact that the young people are expected to accept this on faith and cannot possibly at their age be able to prove the superiority of democracy to other forms of government, if indeed this can be done. The fact, that democracy, the fact that those liberals who most object to any teaching about the deity are generally most insistent that the virtues of democracy be taught should make us aware that what is at issue is not religion in general, but the content of the religion to be taught. Now, for a Christian, that's probably uncontroversial, but that's pretty shocking for a public or secular educator to be confronted with that reality because at the heart of the religious nature of education is the question of the nature of the human person. And this issue is coming to your school whether you like it or not. It is coming. The nature of the human person is a faith postulate and it shapes the character of society and thereby education generally. I've had uh, uh, letters recently from parents at uh, Christian schools in the GTA wondering what to do about the self-identification of certain male students as transgendered or bisexual in the Christian schools where they're coming to school in dresses and so on and insisting to be on being treated as girls. 
It's what's going to happen when Christian schools say no to that. If parents uh, react negatively. You see, the question is, what is our nature and what is the goal of our conditioning of children? Because we condition children in terms of a view of their nature and the role in life that that nature gives them. Today, the state-sanctioned view in the public schools and most private schools is that human beings are advanced animals and along with pagans like Plato, affirm that we are political animals. So according to modern educational doctrine, we've evolved by chance from the void, and we can ascertain no meaning or purpose beyond that which we can determine and decide for ourselves. So all meaning is essentially ephemeral. And this is a return to ancient pagan concepts of reality that disconnects all knowledge from God. This is the, I'm describing to you the context of education in Canada today, from the university to the elementary school, in terms of the elites and the curriculum writers. As one uh, historian has put it, in ancient Greek thought, the human mind freely and independently was regarded as capable of knowing reality and understanding all the facts without reference to God. Because Greek thought had no conception of an independent and self-sufficient God who is the source of all true authority, it could not develop the authority of this God-related reason. For the Greeks, authority came from the polis, from the city-state, not from God. Now, education and social order have returned to this starting point today. As a religious faith, humanism has no source of authority outside of the mind of man. A mind which participates in the becoming of evolution, that is, participates in being in general. In such a view, people do not need God, or think they don't need God, to interpret any of the facts or to develop an adequate education. God is irrelevant to education. Each person can independently interpret reality for themselves. But then you have a a contest of wits, where everybody is offering their own interpretation of reality. And in such a uh, world, no unity can be accomplished for the educational order unless you you have a replacement source of authority. You can't have chaos, so you need a replacement source of authority for God. And that is the state. We thus return to the pagan philosopher's vision. The state becomes the basic institution and the educational institution. And so from the Christian vantage point, education becomes the vehicle of state activism, where the political animal is molded to adopt the state's religious vision of the future. And that's exactly what is happening across our nation today. This naturally leads to the notion that since the state is the locus of authority, it must also be a saving institution. So the early dreamers, actually, about uh, provincial education in Ontario and state education in the West in general, very much saw the classroom as the new pulpit, the humanist's curriculum as the new Bible, the state educator as the new priesthood to transform society and to save it from itself. State education is thus laden today with unrealistic expectations of solving the problems of sin and crime and emotional and mental health problems and social disintegration and educational and economic disparity and every other form of social salvation will be provided by the state. 
on the Christian, and this is why, of course, we offer, you know, full-day um, uh, kindergarten on the taxpayer and all these kind of things, because the school, the state, is going to save man from himself. It's a joke, really. It's turned out to be a joke. The 20th century has proven it to be a joke. Educational standards have just gone down and down, and social disintegration has accelerated. But on the Christian view, of course, God in Christ saves and restores people, transforms them by his word and spirit, and education becomes not a saving institution, but teaching and training in the art of freedom, the liberal arts, the art of freedom in terms of God's absolute standards of truth and right. Now, in Western education today, our concept of ourselves has become self-centered and not God-centered. So our allegiance is essentially in the educational establishment shifted from God to self. And so what happens is a terrible burden is placed upon the individual to play God. I mean, what would you call it where in California, where I was last week, uh, children as young as uh, SK have to self-identify at the beginning of the semester to determine which washrooms they're going to use. So you have a burden placed on the individual that is crushing. It's impossible. And if it's not there, it's delegated to... Ultimate decisions about life are delegated to others. And the other to which people prefer to delegate responsibility for all of this today is to the state and its schools. Even the politicians don't want to take responsibility. They want to delegate these decisions to the courts. The Christian sees the result of this relativism as growing social confusion and chaos and social breakdown. The state sees that as well. So what it does is it believes it needs to increase and grow the regulatory state in order to enforce some kind of meaningful consensus, a collective will, if you will, on the educational establishment. So we're seeing the steady reduction of freedom in education. For Christians, of course, there's no denying that education in the West in general has moved decisively to embrace humanism in Canada. For decades, since uh, Egerton Ryerson, the chief superintendent of education for Ontario in 1844, a Methodist minister, described Christianity as, quote, the all-pervading principle of Canadian life. Political scientist Michael Wagner has convincingly shown that the decisive influence of Christianity on public education waned, in particular during the 1960s and 70s, was completely uprooted by the so-called Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, as that charter was then applied to a subsequent series of rulings in education. So we had a Christian public system that began firmly in biblical roots, where teachers were expected, believe it or not, until the late 60s, some of you are probably old enough to remember this, according to Ontario's McKay Committee in 1969, quote, to bring home to pupils as far as their capacity allows the fundamental truths of Christianity and their bearing on human life and thought. Can you believe that? By the 1980s, the Canadian court's guns were turned on what was left of Bible reading and prayer in public schools, and the Christian faith was banished. Wagner says this, 
On December 6, 1990, the Ontario Ministry of Education issued a memorandum ordering all public schools to end any indoctrination in a religious faith. Regulations governing education were changed accordingly. The era of Christianity in Ontario's public schools was over. End quote. And as I've already pointed out, the meaning of a demand to end indoctrination in a religious faith was not the repudiation of religious faith, but the repudiation of Christianity in favor of the religion of humanism and a particular type of interpretation of democracy as social justice. Now, on the view of the Christian as Christian teachers today, we recognize that contemporary education pretends to neutrality, which is a myth. There is no such thing as neutrality in education. Neutrality as a concept is a byproduct of humanistic thought because what it presupposes is a cosmos of autonomous, self-generated, meaningless facts. Bits of reality that have been thrown up from the void by chance. They are meaningless, the facts are meaningless, because from atoms to antelopes, there is no sovereign creator, no providential God who is distinct from the universe, and therefore no overarching design plan, no creator God, that precedes existence and history. And that's the fundamental idea of the non-Christian worldview. There's no pre-established relationship between any of the properties of the universe. So what is education then? Reality is then impervious to interpretation because what is isn't actually rationally related except after the fact by man. So you don't discover any meaning there as I often illustrate this in my debates on the existence of God. It's like children doing connect-the-dot puzzles. The idea of a connect-the-dot puzzle uh, is that I'm sure you remember them, right? Before there was Nintendo and Game Boy and, all, and whatever. I'm probably behind the Xbox, whatever it is they play now. Uh, the idea was that a child would learn to draw and recognize shapes by connecting the dots on the page. And as you connect the dots in the right order, the picture emerges. It's a house. It's a giraffe. It's a whatever. And the reason that's possible is the dots, which represent the particulars of our experience, there is a pre-established meaning. There's an author of the puzzle. So that when the child connects those bits of experience, those uh, discrete things, an overall picture emerges. They discover the meaning. Well, what if there is no designer of the puzzle? What if it's just a sea of undifferentiated dots where there is no design plan? Well, then, of course, you are just inventing a meaning. You're not discovering one. There isn't one there. There's no author. There's no plan. You are just inventing a meaning, and everybody else has the right to invent their own meaning as well. The human person has no definitive essence, then, that precedes experience in the world. There's no God-given personhood. The facts are uncreated, undirected, unrelated, and consequently neutral. That's the concept of neutrality in education. It comes from the Latin meaning neither one thing nor another, neuter, neutral, neuter, to be neither one thing nor another. Of course, it's come to mean in our time an unbiased position. 
uh, an unwillingness to take sides. But it's clear from the origin of the concept that a neutral position concerning education entails a whole set of beliefs about reality that aren't religiously neutral. I just gave them to you. They are religiously pre-committed. An ostensibly neutral education, then, is an illusion, albeit a useful one, to the modern state, which has insisted on the neutrality of its education, because otherwise they would be violating the politically sacred cow of the separation of church and state, or religion and public institutions. So you have to pretend to neutrality. Since all education, though, has a purpose, you see, I'm telling you that because I don't want you to think that, well, we do religious education because we're Christians. Now, all education is religious. It just depends on the religious foundations. All education has a purpose in view, furthermore, and purpose presupposes direction, or to use the technical term, teleology. And it's again obvious that education as a vision within society can't be to no purpose. I mean, Kathleen Wynne doesn't think education has no purpose. She's got a very deliberate purpose for her education, as you know with the controversy of her promised attempt to reintroduce the radical sex ed curriculum, which was crafted by child abusers like Levin, a self-confessed now and convicted child abuser. The term liberal and liberty, you see, are both derived from the Latin liber, free. And so what we believed, what we used to believe anyway, was that education for freedom was the purpose of the liberal arts. But what makes a person free and what's the ground of their freedom? Now, we used to agree about that, so the liberal arts weren't a problem, but that agreement has evaporated. Philosophical progressivism in education with roots in men like Horace Mann and John Dewey, which have shaped all North American education, held that true freedom is liberation from the past. Liberation from the past and from authority or revealed truth. Ultimately, liberation from God himself. That was what freedom was. Freedom, in this view, is not the result of salvation in Jesus Christ. It means, instead, liberation from previous constraints. To deny that approach to education today, and I've delivered a talk like this to public educators in Toronto. It's an interesting experience. It means coming under censure as a regressive reactionary. It's a kind of utopian freedom that they hold that's going to be realized by this universal system of state-sponsored schools that realizes free expression for the individual. Freedom must be, though, from something to something. Freedom can't be to no purpose. You're free from something to be something or to do something in terms of an ultimate standard. Now, this freedom is either going to be pragmatic, that is, instrumental in terms of a shifting idea of the social contract, or it's going to have a transcendent source in God. In the former, education ceases to be the art of freedom in terms of a universal meaning and purpose, and it will be defined by the bureaucracy through its social planners in a way that they think serves the collective will. State control then means a little more than people control. That's the purpose of the new education, is just to control people. 
Freedom is what the state says it is. There's no appeal beyond the state in that view for freedom. It's pragmatic, it's instrumental. Well, the people think this or the people want that. Often the people don't want that. An elite group of revolutionaries want that. And they start to tell the people that that's what they want. All education is therefore developed and carried out in terms of a purpose or program for freedom, either freedom from God in the past and previous constraints, or freedom under God. The question is, who will define that freedom and the end of that freedom? Of course, our education is in terms of the purposes of God and his creative and redemptive work in history. All other education is to another religious purpose altogether. This is what I try desperately to get through to parents who have their children in the public system, who cannot seem to grasp this. And that means that all education is a field of conflict. Now, you might feel it's a field of conflict because you've got difficult children in your class, but it's a field of conflict for a much bigger reason than that. It's a field of conflict because it's a battle for the minds of the young and therefore the shape of the future. That's why it's so controversial. That's why the bar associations are against TWU. That's why radical sex ed is going to be forced into, or the desire is it to be forced into all Christian, all uh, Ontario's public schools. It's why there are attempts to enforce uh, statist standards on private schools and increasingly home schools, because it's a battle about the shape of the future. It is unlikely that we will all sit down together and sing kumbaya about education. That's not going to happen. George Grant pointed out, and I quote, the constitutional state has an interest in limiting pluralism of belief. When the state has become secularized, it will quickly free itself from its use of the church. The religion of humanity and progress will reign monolithically in the schools, end quote. He prophetically added, he said, assuming their religion to be self-evidently true, all men of goodwill, to all men of goodwill, they are forceful in advocating that it should be the public religion, end quote. He called this religion the religion of progress, mastery, and power. Mastery and power require of necessity the dominance of the new public polytheistic religion of religious pluralism and so on. It requires the indoctrination of children into this new faith of progress, and that's required across the board in order to redefine the future. Christians today, as we look to the future of education, then want to look back to lessons of the past to be resourced and inspired for the future, and we need to be inspired and resourced for the future. You'll know that education was in the hands, formerly, of the family and of the church. It was the primary, the primary supporter of Christian schools was the church. It funded them through the tithe. Getting pastors today to even consider promoting Christian education is a major challenge for the most part. It was far from perfect, of course, but in the West, the development of literacy and, and development overall was because of Christian education. Steadily, however, with modernity and progressivism eroding the centrality of the family and the church's role in society, this vision for a mass state-controlled education developed. And right now, the whole system is in crisis because we can't afford it. And multiple schools within the um, GTA, within the TDSB, are slated for closure because they're only half full. 
It's because we don't believe in the family anymore. The whole program is suicidal. But Christians like Egerton Rice in Ontario did begin with a noble intention of developing greater Christian character in the young and a broader Christian education free from an Anglican monopoly. That was the desire for it. And that was the motivation behind his initial proposals. But of course, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And once tax dollars were being used to primarily fund education, as the philosophy of the elites changed, the philosophy of education was radically altered and was tax-funded. Of course, in my property taxes, even though my children are in the school that I was involved in founding, Westminster Classical Christian Academy, I still have to pay for the public system as well. Today, when... Many Christian parents have their children return to them from their state education experience. They're shocked to find their child is alienated from the family and from the faith, taught a radically different morality, and subsequently they abandon the church. And that's what 85% of evangelical children raised in evangelical homes are doing right now in North America. It's not encouraging reading, I know, but... I'm trying to explain to you why what you're doing is so important. This landscape is a far cry from what the Methodist minister Ryzen had involved, no, had imagined, no doubt, when he proposed these non-denominational Christian schools funded by the state for Protestants. For the serious Christian, though, the idea of finding harmony with current educational proposals is simply untenable. Because we hold that the uncreated being of God created the universe and all things in it, sustaining all things in terms of his law and purposes. That is, we have an infinite God and a created finite universe, whereas the non-believer holds the exact opposite. For them, the universe has created the gods or God. They have either a finite God as an aspect of an infinite or self-generated universe or no God at all dismissed as a concept generated by the mind of man. So by definition, non-Christian education is godless education, by definition. Christian education, however, is God-centered education. And so what is most central and important to a Christian is entirely left left out by neutral education. Godless education denies that we are created in the image of God. I believe you've had a session on that today already. And are responsible to God. Now think about that for a moment. Godless education denies we're created in the image of God and are responsible to God, which entails the notion that human identity is a social construct and we cannot transgress the law of God. And if man cannot transgress the law of God, then he's not a sinner. And if he's not a sinner, he doesn't need Christ or the gospel. A child educated in such a view soon realizes he does not need to live and think in terms of the triune God of the Bible but can think and live autonomously, totally for himself or herself. So you see, the implications of a neutral education are far-reaching. When a young mind is open sufficiently to critically at university, think through the implications of what they believe. Most Christian university students today are hybrid Christians. They are part pagan, part Christian. 
They have a set of morals that they've, they've been, have been inculcated in their lives by their Christian parents, but especially if they went to a state school or an inadequate Christian school, they do not have a thoroughgoing Christian cosmology, and the two don't fit. They get to university, and they've got Christian morality here and a humanistic pagan worldview here, and they can't relate them together. One becomes an issue of faith up here in the spiritual realm about heaven and some ethereal realm that doesn't really connect to now. It's abstract, or it's just a personal experience. Whereas the other one seems to be talking about facts and history and reality and science and so on. And typically, the Christian faith loses out in the struggle. Well, we have to address that in Christian education. It's, of course, true in a certain sense that when a Christian educator and a non-Christian educator looks at a cat, we both call it a cat. We both identify it in the same way. But is that agreement anything more than superficial in terms of the nature of a cat? Let's take another example for a moment. In the field of mathematics which is the most difficult in which to establish the myth of neutrality, so I go to that one straight away. We may have formal or conventional agreement with the non-believer that two times two is four, but that's as far as the agreement goes. And that superficial agreement turns out to be only pragmatic, not substantive, as soon as you think about the most basic questions related to this idea, the agreement vanishes. The Christian philosopher Cornelius Van Til has put it this way. Quote, when you think of two times two as four, you connect this fact with numerical law. And when you connect this fact with numerical law, you must connect numerical law with all law. The question you face then is whether law exists in its own right or is an expression of the will of, of the will and nature of God. Thus, the fact that 2 times 2 equal 4 enables you to implicate yourself more deeply into the nature and will of God, end quote. So the Christian perspective, he's saying, is that the consistency of law, intelligibility, coherence, dependability, etc., in the created order, even at this abstract level of mathematics, with its incredible explanatory power for the concrete world, whereby we can land things on Mars and put men on the moon and so on, is guaranteed by the religious presupposition that God is the author of all law and that in understanding and exploring mathematical relationships, we grow in our understanding of the wisdom of God and our dependence upon him. That's the Christian view. But, however, he says, quote, when an unbeliever says two times two or four, he will also be led to connect this fact with the whole idea of law. But he will regard this law as independent of God. Thus, the fact that two times two are four enables him, so he thinks, to get farther away from God. That fact will place the unbeliever before a whole sea of open possibilities in which he may seek to realize his life away from God, end quote. In other words, the doctrine of God will, at the outset, impact our use of mathematics. Do mathematical relationships take us into the nature and purpose of God or bring us before an infinite sea of possibility where we have no way of understanding or describing why the world out there corresponds to abstract ideas in here?
When we look at theories concerning mathematics, it's interesting to notice there's no consensus around what numbers are. So you can say 2 times 2 is 4. If a child says, well, what's 2? What, what is a number? Is it the fridge magnet, number 2? Can, can you hold the number 2? Can you, if you grab number 2 off the fridge, can you say, I, I've got 2 What is it? Well, Roy Clauser has shown that the solutions to this question have been diverse. You have the number world theory of the ancient Greeks and some Enlightenment rationalists, which held to the idea numbers are eternal entities existing in another dimension upon which the visible world depends. The Pythagoreans sung hymns to the number, ten, for example. They worship numbers. John Dewey's pragmatism says that numbers are cultural products. They stand for nothing. They're just tools that help us do jobs. They're neither true nor false. No mathematical equation is true or false. That's why doing math today and times tables is less important to educators in the public system. And that many students are sub-literate in the area of arithmetic because they're cultural tools. They don't correspond to anything real. They're neither true nor false, so you don't mark a student wrong. That was a creative solution they came up with. John Stuart Mill's notion of numbers are as generalizations about sensory perceptions, and Bertrand Russell's view that they are logic class, logical classes to doing uh, shortcuts to doing logic. There are various different ways in which numbers themselves have been viewed. In fact, it's impossible to conceive of any subject area in educational curriculum that is free from religious assumptions that might convey a religiously neutral worldview. The Christian does not, for example, indeed cannot reduce history and social order to economics like the Marxists or meaning and morality to linguistics like the deconstructionists or science to the sensory like the materialists since God is the creative source and designer of the relationship between all the laws and properties of experience, there is actually a distinctively Christian approach to history, to economics, to epistemology, to linguistics, to science, and to every other subject, including art and music and everything else. There is a reason why Bach, the Reformation, produced Johann Sebastian Bach, and the modern era produces John Cage, who gets naked people to scratch on things. To do, as, as, as music or sits down at a piano in total silence and gets up to the applause of the audience Christian education is God-centered in that it relates all knowledge back to God and his word and if Christian religious education is to have a future it must be allowed to continue to develop its presuppositions in education that established the great institutions of learning in the West, the voice of the Lord coming from the Tannoy. So in a context where our historic historic Christian consensus has broken down, the question is, will our country allow a competitive plurality of educational options? Or will coercion and tyranny be the dominant view in education? The Christian view is that The liberal arts of Christendom is the foundation of freedom. It's no surprise that as we've lost Christian education, freedom is disappearing. Now, we have to teach this, and we have to educate in terms of a distinctly Christian philosophy, and we have to fight for our educational freedom. And the reason for that is this, that in a competitive environment where 
All are allowed. Let the pagans develop their presuppositions. You know what the development of pagan presuppositions in education has produced? Empty schools. Empty schools. This is how pagan education collapsed in the ancient Roman world and education became Christian. Because Christians gave the best, most effective education. It was recognized as such by pagans and they sent their children to Christian schools as the pagan education around them collapsed. That's what's happening. Financially, educationally, we are seeing the demise of statist, humanistic education. Well, they're fighting tooth and nail for it, of course. They desperately want to control the future, but they don't believe that they have... But their policies and their actions mean that man has no future. So the only people with a future in Canada today, the only worldview with a future... A real future is the Christian worldview. It's the one that you're teaching. And we want our schools to be such that in the end, everybody wants their child in a Christian education. How we handle that sociologically and how, how we would start schools and so on, that's another question. But the point is that everybody in a competitive environment would actually see that Christian education is the true education. It's the education that built our universities and established our schools, and I want to encourage you to both fight for it and to develop a distinctively Christian education in your classroom. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.